Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Lauren, uh, one of the elders here at Bethany Church. Um, and this morning, uh, scripture reading is going to be from Galatians uh, 1, 1 through 4. Again, that's Galatians 1, 1 through 4. Um, this is Paul's greeting and opening in his letter to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, our God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Well, this morning we are, we're looking at Paul's introduction to his uh, letter to the Galatians. Uh, small passage, but some phrases in there that I think are valuable, important, and will minister to us today in this small two-week series that we're wrapping up this morning uh, called Hope for the Oppressed, Discovering God's Heart for the Abused and Afflicted. We're doing the hard work of these two weeks of really looking starkly at a serious evil that faces many. Oppression was the term we used last week, the biblical term for what we might call uh, abuse. God's story of his people even, the story of God's people has been a story of oppression and deliverance. And yet the church has not always made the obvious connection to domestic oppression or spiritual leadership abuse. And at times, even the church has failed at times to make that connection, even though this is, this is God's heart. Take a look at Jeremiah 22. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver, there's that word, from the hand of the oppressor, him who's been robbed. His, God has a heart for deliverance, a heart to deliver those who have been oppressed. So I want to real quick before we jump into week two, to wrap up, I wanted to revisit those kind of precursory comments again before we begin. I realize in a two-week series like this, we are not going to cover everything or say everything on this topic. Um, like I said, we have more resources and some from last week, but more even today available out there. Uh, and we're going to continue to provide ongoing help and information and even revisit this topic. Uh, I want to avoid the idea that we can have a quick fix mentality in a small two-week series um, with such a subject matter. I also know, as we said last week, there's some sitting here today who've been through situations like this or maybe currently now, and that real wounds, present or past, might be reopened in these two weeks. I also realized we talked last week too that as a, a, as a church, as an elder board, we're not as equipped as we could be to help those who are in these kind of situations. And I even feel inadequate. We're currently reading, as I said, resources as an elder board also, and have connected with a couple local great counselors to help us grow and educate ourselves. Um, but I think, as even as we talk about these reasons, these are reasons, I think, to have a series like this, even if it's small in just a couple weeks, as we talk about painful and hard things, even if it makes us uncomfortable. So this morning, a quick recap. Defining oppression again. First, we're going to find my prayer is hope and encouragement today for the oppressed 
and for our church as we look to God the Deliverer. And really this morning, a lot of what we talk about is applicable for all kinds of, of, of seasons of trial, uh, of, of seasons of suffering in your life as we look to God for hope this morning. As we proclaim again this morning, as our scripture did, Jesus the deliver, Deliverer will deliver us from this present evil age. Here's what uh, Lauren read for us. Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So this morning, we're going to hear two calls this morning, two calls to deliverance, one for the oppressed and one for the church. That's going to be where we're headed today. Two calls today, one for the oppressed and one for the church. So if you've got your outline open there and your Bible open to Galatians 1, as we quickly do a, a quick recap uh, of last week uh, as we defined oppression. We defined it uh, this way. Oppression takes place when one spouse seeks to control and dominate the other through a pattern of coercive, controlling, and punishing behavior. And really, this, this could be, take place uh, as we even talked about last week, it doesn't have to be just a domestic situation. There could be others as well. But oppression would be defined this way, a controlling type of relationship. I encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's message, I really encourage you to go back and, and listen to last week's message if you weren't here to, to make the connection between the two. You can find it online uh, on our website, canbebethany.org, or contact the church office this week and we'll get you a CD if you need one. The term oppressed, why do we use it? It covers a wide variety of situations and relationships, not just domestic, leadership situations. Could be in a friendship relationship. Could be a boss to an employee. All kinds. But here's where the term, why we use the term oppression, here's where it's really valuable for us. When we use the term oppression, it speaks to the, 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 the dominating motives of the oppressor's heart, of what's going on. We talked last week that this is not, we're not talking about a normative marriage sin pattern. This is an, an issue with the oppressor. It's not a marriage problem. When we get to this type of situation, this is an issue with the oppressor. It's not a marriage problem. So to treat it like that actually does more harm. If there's an oppressive situation, especially taking place in a marriage, to sit down in marriage counseling is probably the last place you should be because of the nature of what's taking place here. It actually does more harm. Oppression, it is a, it's a narcissistic, uh, self-entitled. Entitlement's really the driving force. Really worship of self. It's idolatry of self, and any roadblocks that get in the way of that will be removed. We said last week, too, it's not the oppressed person's fault. It is not the oppressed person's fault. And we also said they do not deserve the abuse they're under and have every right even to remove themselves from the situation. We used a, a, a parable last week. Do you remember? From the book of Judges. It's a strange story, kind of maybe a little unknown from that really violent, strange book, Judges. From Judges 9, we used that parable to get a, to get a biblical picture of oppression, of how God portrays it in His Word. Do you remember the bramble? We talked about the bramble last week from this parable in Judges 9. 
The bramble's a thorny bush that, 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 that surrounds and smothers and, and isolates another plant or a tree as it chokes out the life of other plants. And in Jotham was his name from Judges 9 who spoke this parable. The bramble grasped for power, was hungry for power and control and was abusive, seeking authority. As the bramble said this last week, the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not... Let fire come out of the bramble, devour the cedars of Lebanon. It's a biblical picture of abuse. That's what we unpacked last week. So go back and hear the fuller message. The bramble was the picture. Thorny, surrounding, choking out. The irony is he says, come get shade under, my, uh, tree, under, under me. And yet, a bramble's thorny. There's no leaves of shade. It's prickly. It surrounds. It chokes. It's a biblical picture of abuse and oppression, but it can take many forms. So let's briefly talk about a couple. Here's some types of oppression. We're not going to unpack all of these, but just so we get a little fuller uh, understanding before we head into our two calls today, here's, here's uh, I would say, five general categories for oppression. Physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, economic. Oppression can be, at times, hard to identify any one of these. And often takes on on different forms, some more subtle and less detectable than others. And every situation can look different. So I wanted to take a moment to just focus, uh, focus on two of these. We can't unpack all of them today, but two of them in particular. Because I believe they're just as destructive as physical abuse and some people who have been through them say even more so. And I also believe in our Christian circles and churches, we're more likely to find these two, emotional and spiritual. So let's define those two a bit more clearly. And again, here's the resources I've really been leaning on these past couple weeks. Both of them are out there today for free in the gathering place, both written by Darby Strickland, a counselor with CCEF. Christian Counseling Education Foundation, uh, called Domestic Abuse, Help for the Sufferer, and the one on the right, Recognize, Respond, and Rescue. Been leaning on these heavy quoting and summarizing directly from them. So let's talk for a minute about those two. First one was emotional abuse. Here's what, here's what Darby Strickland says about it. Here's what emotional abuse is. It's a pattern. These are all patterns, okay? They're, they're ongoing. Pattern of behavior that promotes a destructive sense of, of fear. This is emotional abuse obligation, shame, or guilt. If your spouse neglects or frightens or isolates, belittles or exploits you, plays mind games or lies frequently or blames, shames, or threatens you, they're being emotionally abusive. If you're experiencing attacks on your person, you may begin to believe that you are these things. She says worthless or even deserving of mistreatment. Emotional abuse occurs more frequently, potentially, than even physical abuse, and many, as I said, claim it's even more damaging. The likelihood, though, is that those five that I listed, there's probably a mixture, and that if physical oppression is taking place, then probably emotional is too. And as Strickland says, this kind of emotional oppression takes its toll on a human being. 
causes fear and anxiety and depression and, and even the thoughts that you begin to believe what your oppressor says about you, which is not true we're going to hear today. Depression can result in emotional abuse. How about spiritual abuse? I think we have to be really clear on this one. Because what it does is it takes the words of God. It takes the very truth of His Word and the works of Christ, and it twists them for evil, for dark purposes. Here's what she says about spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse occurs when the oppressor establishes control and domination by using Scripture, doctrine, or, quote, leadership role as weapons. Spiritual abuse can be subtle as it can mask itself as a religious practice. If your spouse exhibits control-oriented leadership, Lord's power over you, demands submission, or uses Scripture in daily life or conflict in shaming and punishing ways, these are signs of spiritual abuse. And here's the thing. The abuse can feel as though it comes from God Himself because it's connected intimately to His Word and who He is. In spiritual abuse, the oppressor will distort God's Word and truth and, and, and weaponize it, Strickland says. Weaponize it. Turn it into something hurtful rather than life-giving. To control is the idea again. This can take place in a family. This can take place in a church. This can take place in a Christian school. All of these areas where the word is central. And it has a devastating effect. How could it not? A devastating effect on the faith of those who are under spiritual oppression. How could it not? And those who lead end up becoming um, a wolf in sheep's clothing using God's food for the sheep and distorting it into something rotten. I have to say, as we, we, we wrap up these two weeks, it's been an, uh, an emotional, I would say, two weeks of reading and studying for me. But, you know, I think of myself as a boo-hoo. We think about our actual neighbors and people we know who've gone through things like this. We need hope. Wise wisdom, patient, deliberate, well-thought-out action. So let's hear two calls from, call from God's Word on some practical ways to respond now this morning. Again, like I said, this is not exhaustive, okay? Uh, it's not an exhaustive plan for the oppressed. It's not an exhaustive plan for, for our, our, our church. But just some practical ways to think today and to find hope. But I wanted to lay out some key thoughts in these two calls because I think God's Word, as we're going to see, clearly lays these things out for us. So here's our first one, our call to the oppressed. Let's look at our call to the oppressed. Maybe someone here, somebody you know, maybe it was you in the past, maybe it'll be you in the future. Here's our first word in this call to the oppressed. Speak to others in your own timing. And every word here is important on this one. Speak to others in your own timing. All these words are important and matter. One of the hardest, for someone who's facing oppression, one of the hardest, but one of the, one of the first things the oppressed can do is just to share their story. But the courage that takes, 
the, the, the vulnerability and world that is instantly opened up as soon as that start to happen sometimes can feel like too much and sometimes takes many, many times and efforts before someone will actually share. But here's what we do know. All sin, whatever it may be, sin thrives in darkness. You know that in your own life. Sin thrives in hiding. It loves darkness, isolation. And when that happens, the voice of your oppressor becomes the dominant, maybe only, only voice you hear, and you begin to believe the lies. But God does not want you to go through this alone. God doesn't want any of his people to go through any trial in their life alone, isolated. God does not want you to suffer in isolation with anything, whatever that might be. God wants us to bring things to light, to talk with each other, so that deliverance begin, can begin now even, not just in the future, but now. Paul spoke to those he called children of light as opposed to darkness in Ephesians. Here's what he said, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light, and therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine on you. Exposed sin is what Paul is talking about. So he's telling the, the, the Ephesian church to do. And really, that's what we're called to do in general, as the church, as children of light. It doesn't mean we're, we're walking around finger-pointing self-righteously, but it does mean that God is in the process of exposing and ridding our lives of sin. As I said, not self-righteously, because the same passage says to the uh, Ephesians, you too were all once children of darkness too. Here's the idea for us as a church. Sin can't be safe here. Sin can't be safe here at Bethany Church. The sinner, by all means, is safe here. That's all of us, right? That's all of us. The sinner, by all means, cared for, loved, uh, spoken to, encouraged, safe, but not his sin. It's not safe. We have to call, as Paul says in Ephesians, we have to call sin what it is. And in some ways, that's what this entire series is about. Naming something that's been here forever in lives and in, in families and cultures, oppression, naming it for what it is. As hard as it sounds, part of loving an oppressor is to expose their sin especially if the oppressor is a professing follower of Christ. Speaking up can be the first step in limiting their ability to sin even against you, resisting the oppression and speaking up. But here's the thing. We said every word mattered. It has to be in your own timing. No one can force this on you. No one should force this on you. It has to be in your own timing. Your story is yours to tell and should be handled in such a way by us or anyone in your life that would minimize 
that would minimize your oppressor's ability to sin against you even more. So in your own timing, that's why this takes so much wisdom and thoughtfulness and probably many resources, more than just your pastor, elders, church, but many resources. has to be your own timing. But speak to others. And as you do, part of speaking to others, I want to encourage you as well that to know that God speaks to us. So speak to God with honest lament too. Part of speaking to His people is being willing to listen back and to hear from God as we live in community together. So speak to God with honest lament. And as we look at this second word, I hope, as I said, all of these, these are really principles for anyone who's in a time of suffering or trial, especially this idea of lament. All kinds of situations of suffering. You know, there's nothing, if you think of your life, and I think if you've been through any of it, there's nothing like suffering to make us feel as if God is far away, distant, right? Do you know that? Have you experienced that? That God is distant. So I want to speak for a moment to those of you who have suffered, whatever the suffering, that it can make you feel far from God, where you say, where are you, Lord? Where are you in the middle of this? Do you know what I'm going through? These are natural questions to ask. Do you even see this? Do you care? And some people think, how can we speak to God like that? Can we say words like that to God? Do you know the Psalms have a pattern of those kinds of questions? all over the place. It's called lament. It's called lament. It's all over the Psalms. Those kind of questions of suffering. So I, I, I put this question back upon us. Do you know that? You have the permission to speak to God this way. He knows what's going on in your heart anyways. He knows if you're frustrated with him. He knows if you're angry with him. Here's what Strickland said as well. Lamenting, it's a powerful way of worshiping God because it helps you remember God's love for you in the worst of circumstances even. To speak it, to say it to Him. The great thing about God is He doesn't ask you to forget your suffering. Even if you forgive, we don't become unwise and just act like nothing ever happened in situations. He doesn't ask you to forget your suffering or anger. He doesn't ask you to suppress it even. Sometimes as Christians, we think, well, hey, I'm just not allowed to be angry, so suppress it, hold it in, don't do anything with it. That's a not a good solution. We all know that, right? We can't just suppress things. Well, so what does he give the Christian to do? We can pray it. You don't have to suppress it. We also don't have the right to vent it however we want, but you can pray it, and that's what lament is. You take your suffering to him, and you lament it. Psalm 10.1, here's a perfect example. Why, he says, O Lord. How many times have you said that? Why? Why is this happening? Oh, Lord. Why, oh, Lord, do you stand far away, he says? Why do you hide yourself in times of troubles? Now, that's some honesty, isn't it? That's some really clear honesty. Psalm 55, it's even entitled, Cast Your Burden on the Lord. It's the title of that psalm. And David writes this psalm, uh, and 55 actually is another one. This was 10, but in Psalm 55, he writes of a companion even that betrayed him, a familiar friend that betrayed him. So Psalm 10 would be one to look at. Psalm 55, another one. And let us not forget, too, that our Lord Jesus had his 12 closest friends betray him, didn't he? To leave him at his time of, 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 of suffering. 
He knows what it feels like to feel abandoned, to feel far from God. So speak it to him. He's been betrayed too, and he can handle your emotion. He can handle what's going on. And as you do, remember that part of that conversation is hearing too then what he says back about you. Remember is our next one. Remember his words about you. Remember his words about you. This is kind of identity stuff. When going through oppression, when going through hard times, uh, oppression, some of the greatest work that needs to be done is reestablishing who you are in Christ if you're a follower of Jesus. Reestablishing your true identity in Jesus when you've heard and maybe thought and maybe even believed so many lies that you can't even know, you're so confused on who you even are. Hearing back from God and reestablishing that. I mean, we all need this. Every one of us. How many, uh, how many things does our culture tell us should be an identifying, primary identifying factor of who you are and what makes you? So many things. So many things. When suffering sometimes can cause us to doubt his love and goodness, look what he says in Isaiah 62 about you, his people. He says, you shall be called a new name. You'll be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. You shall no more be termed forsaken, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. It's the name he gives his people. So shall your God rejoice over you. Hear those words this morning. That's who you are. The lies the enemy loves to throw at us, that you're worthless, that you're not loved, that no one sees you, that you're alone, that no one cares, that you're a failure. All of those lies that come in on us from so many areas, and the enemy included, and the Lord speaks that over you. That's who you are to him. My delight is in her, he calls you. A beautiful crown. You're his child. You're his delight. That's your true identity. You know, Scripture says elsewhere, here's a few more. You're his treasured possession. You're his chosen one. You're his beloved. You're his child. You're his friend. You're holy and redeemed and blameless in his eyes through Jesus. That's who you are. That's who you are. So hear his words back to you as well this morning. That's who you are. We're also delivered, as we said, delivered and redeemed, but not just delivered from future sins, but I want those in the oppressed and us as a church to hear, deliverance begins now. So here's our final one. No, he is a God who delivers in the present and the future, and the future. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he writes... In verse 4, that Christ died for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Did you hear that little phrase in there as the scripture was read this morning? He died to deliver us from this present evil age. Sometimes we focused, I think, in the church on the deliverance, and we should, from future penalty of sin. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what the cross is there for. Delivers us from the future penalty of sin. Delivers us from the power of sin in our lives as we are continually molded into his image, which is all true. 
But we can forget that God is now even, even now, his kingdom, as Jesus has been talking about in the Gospel of Mark even, his kingdom is now breaking in, right now, in this present age, delivering us too from not just the the penalty and power, but the presence of sin too. From the presence of sin now. Yes, in the future, but also now he's delivering us. From this present evil age, Paul writes. And if we look at the pages of Scripture, that's, isn't that what God is doing all over the place? Think about it for a minute. The story of the Bible. He is delivering his people. He's not always just saying, hey, someday we'll be in heaven and it'll be great. And it will. But he's not just saying, hey, just, you know, here it is now. That's just the way it is. But someday, yes, there is the future hope. And yes, we will not be delivered from everything now. But if you look at Scripture, he's delivering from real, active, present violence all over the place. Jacob from Esau. Joseph from his brothers. Moses and the Israelites from Pharaoh. David from the Philistines. Daniel from the lion's den. Yeah. Jonah from the fish. Yeah, the whale. Those are all things that God is doing or did. Real active violence. He delivered them. And on to the Christians from their early oppressors in the church. And so for the oppressed, here's what that means. There are ramifications for God's deliverance, not just in the future, but now. Right now. Here's from another book, a resource that Justin Lindsay Holcomb said. The central theme in all of this is that God gave himself for sin. The greatest weapon of the enemy to destroy us, to deliver us from the present evil age. And this has ramifications for deliverance from all kinds of evil now and into the future. God's been saving and delivering people since the fall of man. And its culmination is Christ's death and resurrection, the centerpiece of history. From their great book on um, domestic oppression, Is It My Fault is the title of the book. But deliverance, even for God's people many times, doesn't usually mean uh, an instantaneous miracle or an instant quick fix, does it? God tends to work through, and hear this now, the ordinary means of his people. He tends to work through secondary causes. That's us sitting in the seats today. Of his people, their work to deliver others, to help others, to love others through their prayers, through their tangible ways. That's how he tends to work. So that means you and I are involved in the mission of deliverance, in the mission of bringing people the truth and love and the gospel. He doesn't The normative way God works isn't just to pluck somebody out of suffering, just put you down somewhere else. He works through his people. That's the way he's chosen to do it. He can do it the other way, and sometimes he does, but he loves to work through his people. And that's where our call to the church comes in. We close with this today. Our call to the church. We'll close with this. This call to the church is God's people. That means... We are used as the means of deliverance many times in people's lives. And some of you have experienced that in a beautiful way from others in this church. I know there's stories you can think of of so-and-so that helped you then and so-and-so that helped you then and maybe you helped so-and-so when that happened. We have stories of that here. Not by our own power and strength, but we rely on the Lord in obedience. Here's what we're going to do as a church. Here's our first call. We will walk alongside those in oppression. 
as we listen, as we love, as we protect and provide best we can. You and I, we're called to walk alongside each other. We are called to live life shoulder to shoulder, even as you're sitting now, as we're sitting in our seats together. To listen to one another. Provide and protect. And I mean, you see, it points to us a, the reality that church life and discipleship goes way beyond just your Sunday morning attendance, doesn't it? We're called to be in each other's lives and come alongside each other in life's trials and troubles and afflictions. We walk together. We walk together as Jesus did with his disciples. We walk arm in arm, hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder. We walk together. We're not alone. Will we do it perfectly? No. But we have to try. We have to try. We listen and love patiently, help the oppressed tell their story and their time, counsel and care in ways that hopefully don't promote further abuse and make it a first priority to bring the oppressed to safely. We patiently walk the road together. We will, we're saying. And as we walk that road, here's what we need. We will also encourage with our new identity in Christ. So this is our call to our church. We'll walk alongside each other. We will encourage with our new identity in Christ. If, you, if we've talk, hit on this a bit, a bit this morning already, but if you have faced any type of oppression, you, you, you've been victimized in a way. It's not your fault, we've said. And you don't deserve it. Uh, and you shouldn't minimize that or ignore that, that you have been victimized, but at the same time, you have to fight for and not let that victimization be your supreme identity because it can overtake you. It just can. And become a reigning identity, like so many other things can. All kinds of things have become your, your, your number one identity, who I am, how I find meaning and purpose, or, or just what I am as a person. And being a victim can become one of those. If you've been adopted into God's family, first and foremost, you are a child of God. That is your reigning identity. We have to fight for that. We all do. Every morning, I have to fight for that. Who am I today? What am I? I'm a child of God. That's who I am first and foremost. That's my reigning identity. And it's based on, on God's love and God's grace and God's mercy for us. You and I didn't do anything to earn that identity. And yet we have it in Jesus Christ, his deliverance. As the Galatians passage says, but we have to battle this identity. And so as a church, we're called, we're committing to letting our identity in Christ be the number one thing we're about here. And, and growing in that. Because it takes a lifetime to grow in it, doesn't it? We don't arrive at, in this. So many things our culture wants to have us put as our supreme identity. So many. But you are, as a follower of Christ, first and foremost, a beloved child of God. We have to hear that over and over again. So we'll find our identity in Christ. And as we do, another call to the church is this as well. We will uphold a servant-hearted view of marriage and masculinity here at Bethany Church. We will uphold a servant-hearted view of marriage and masculinity here. We're not going to pack this too much today. We will hit it other times. I think even as we get into um, Genesis, maybe, after the book of Mark, we will talk about it. 
other than to say that men, God calls us, yes, to lead in our homes and in the church. The Word of God says that. But that leadership, that initiating role you're called to, and that God will one day hold you accountable for, is to be servant-hearted masculinity. Servant-hearted. And the church has erred really on two sides. So if, if, if the biblical model is servant-hearted leadership, the church has erred on two sides throughout its history. On the one hand, many have thought, well, the idea that men are called to lead, that's the problem. That's the problem. And so the one uh, side of the ditch, you might say, if there's two sides of, of the ditch on the path, the biblical path, the one side would be, uh, hey, that's the problem, that the Bible says men are called to leave. And so what's ended up happening is husbands check out. They become passive. They disappear. They fade into the background. They don't disciple their children. That's the one side that's happened in the church. It has. We have to be re realistic. And they abandon their leadership call. That's the one ditch. The other ditch on the other side of the path is one you might call hyperheadship. As, as, as Bible talks about man being the head of a family and Christ being the head of a church, hyperheadship's the other side of the ditch, which turns quickly into spiritual abuse. Husband doesn't treat his wife like a spiritual equal. He subjugates her, squelches her, becomes a harsh taskmaster using sometimes the Word of God, hey, I'm the leader, that's the way it goes, that's what I say. That's the other side of the ditch. We will be a place that teaches our boys, our men, strong, humble, meek, servant-hearted leadership. And we'll also teach them to know how to repent when they fail, because we will and we do, don't we, men? <laughs> we do. We have the grace of Jesus Christ to cover it. But we will, we will teach this. It's a call for us. We need to be this kind of place. And finally, here's our last one. We will be a place of gospel, grace, and peace. Verse 3 of the Galatians passage said it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses those words all over the place when he gives greetings. Grace and peace. That grace and, and peace, shalom is kind of the idea, comes from truly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians 1.4, again, we'll see it here, it's coming up. Jesus gave himself for our sins, there's the gospel, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Sin has entered this world. There's no denying that. But Jesus has come to deliver us from the present evil age. I have to believe that. We have to fight for that with grace and peace. Hasn't come just to deliver us from the penalty and power of sin in his death on the cross, but also from the actual presence of sin and evil too. Deliverance from this present evil age. What that looks like, especially with the area of oppression, we are still figuring out as a church. And we will be. But what that looks like on the grand scale of history, we know. It's this table. Jesus died to free and deliver in the presence and the power and the penalty of sin. 
So we'll care as best we can as this table points to what took place in history. We'll care the best we can for the oppressed. Offering comfort, real help, the gospel, love and care. We'll call the oppressor to true repentance and radical change in Jesus. As we sing and speak and pray and share this message, you see at the table, until he returns, amen? Until he comes back. This is what we're about. Because the life, his life, his death, his resurrection, this table proves to us that deliverance from evil is happening. It will happen someday ultimately, but it's happening in the here and now too, and you and I get to be part of that. That's an exciting mission to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel, by the power of Jesus Christ, by, the, by the, the, what he has done through the cross and his sacrifice. We get to be part of that. And we don't even deserve it. It's a free gift. And we have his power and his spirit to live out that mission. Let's take a moment and just contemplate, just pray, maybe pray for the oppressed that you know or that we don't know and can be or our lives. Contemplate the gospel and the real deliverance we have. As our ushers come and uh, get ready to, to serve us, to use it as a time of your own time of repentance. As God calls us to come to him with a clean heart at this table. Would you bow and just spend some time in quiet contemplation?